Welcome to the Anthro Now podcast series, a collection of conversations about the relevance of anthropology to public life. These podcasts can be found online at www.anthronow.com. First, I just wanted to kind of get your get an understanding of where this idea for the project came about. Um, I've read from the interviews that you've done that it's you know this thought of what happens with our waste, but kind of the seed of where your thought process started um, and why this project. The seed was planted long ago. The seed for this project. I was hiking in the Adirondacks with my dad when I was about ten, and we came to a campsite where people who preceded us had left behind a dump in the middle of the forest. And I was appalled and shaken by it, actually, that adults who took themselves into the wilderness and spent nights in the forest and one would assume cared about wild things and places like the Adirondacks, that they would leave behind trash. And the question in the moment was, who did they think was coming to clean that up? And that question stayed with me because it's a question you can ask about daily life wherever you are. Who's cleaning up after me? Not my home necessarily, although of course people hire for help with that, but I mean solid waste in all kinds of different forms. Someone has to be responsible for it and we mostly get to ignore that someone. So that's where my question was born, and that's, it, it really did stay with me from, from that time. I didn't understand, though, for, for years, that I could answer that question through anthropology. I, I thought it was just weird. And as, as fully as I thought I understood that anthropology embraces any question with such beautiful ways of exploring all kinds of dis- different aspects of humanness, right? I, it, it took me a while to recognize that even that question could be very fruitfully explored under the umbrella of the discipline. Was it surprising to you that there hadn't been much work done on waste before, um, especially in an urban setting like New York, from a social scientific kind of perspective of, of looking at the workers themselves and sort of how they view what they're doing and, and then how the city's residents don't even think about waste, which is, I think, one of the main things you've been exploring is the invisibility of this sort of work. It, it did surprise me. And to me, after well, partly because I had been sort of mulling the question for so long, it was very obvious to me that this was a fascinating set of um, problems to explore. And it has been done for many other city employees and different workers in general, but so the gap for people working in municipal solid waste, has it still puzzles me. One of the reasons that my book is getting attention right now is that local media, various media, are looking at it saying, oh, isn't this unusual? In fact, there was a, uh, an interview I did a couple of weeks ago, and the, the woman's first question was, how did you come up with such an unusual project? And I said, if I may gently correct you, this is not an unusual project because this is a kind of standard anthropological research effort with 
a proposal and participant observation and interviews and archival research and historic context research and um, it actually fits a, almost a classical model of how we do our work. The unusual part is the people with whom I have spent the time, the people who are at the center of the research. That may be unusual, but the project itself fits the mm -hmm. disciplinary tradition. It's almost boring how standard it is, in, in a sense. Um, so it, it, uh, it has always puzzled me why, it still puzzles me, why people who do that kind of work have not been the focus, uh, our focus mm -hmm. as scholars in the past in any large way. That's beginning to change. There's a um, fellow who did his dissertation out of Michigan in anthropology, Josh mm -hmm. Reno, and he worked at a landfill and the book is all about the workers and the dynamics and the cultural mores and the secret languages and mm -hmm. you know the culture of that group of people. Um, and of course, archaeology has always had garbage as part of its concern, even if it's not always blunt that part of its foundation rests on discards. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's not it's not always framed in that kind of language, but um, that is at at the it's one of the most important elements of of one of our four fields. If you right. want to look at it from a four field perspective, and even not from a four field perspective, just from the perspective of archaeology. So I, I remember reading in some of the other interviews that you've done that um, it was hard for you to get access. And um, so can you talk a little bit first why, you know, why did you think, I mean, you're an anthropologist by training, but why did you think the methods of anthropology of participant observation and doing this ethnography were well suited for this project and then how did you go about getting the the permission and why do you think it was so difficult to, to be let in in the beginning? Well those are three separate questions yeah. so let me take them in order. I felt that anthropology was the ideal toolkit to use for this kind of project because I knew that anthropology allows the researcher to stay a lot longer than if it were say an effort of a journalist. Um, which is not to say that journalists don't do solid work, but the the tradition is that you do a story and then you go on to another story and go on to another story. And anthropology lets us linger in ways that um, are a little mm, slower, um, but also let us go deeper, I think, and form more, maybe more lasting relationships. Partly my, my presumption that anthropology was the right approach is because that's that is my training, and so that is how I see the world. It's both a gift and a myopia, I think, that anything, anything can be considered anthropologically, I think to great benefit, both for the anthropologist, hopefully also for the people with whom she's working, but, and for the larger world, and we don't do enough of that. Mm -hmm. That's a slightly separate issue. Um, the question about it being slow to get in, um, I forget the order. Did you ask why was it hard, or how I? What was it? What were the second set of questions? Yeah, sorry, it was a lot at once. Um, we think it was hard. To, okay. To do what in. Well, that's that's easy. Now that in hindsight, I can talk about why it was hard because I understand it now. What I proposed to the Department of Sanitation had not been done before, so there was no model to use to understand what I was asking. I wasn't like something that they already had dealt with. 
It, it was also during a time in the city's political history when the mayor then, Rudy Giuliani, had really clamped down on ways in which his agencies dealt with the larger public. So the safest response for sanitation, as I'm sure was true for most other city agencies at the time, when presented with a request that they didn't recognize as being like a request they'd ever had before, the safest, easiest response was to just say no. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't know any of that at the time. But once I, there was a change in mayors and then a change in administration within sanitation, and then I was allowed to come and speak to them as a serious scholar with a serious idea, and they gave it serious attention and gradually opened the door a little wider and a little wider. Part of my education that was just as important as time in the field and on the street, or rather I should say that was as much a piece of field work, was learning bureaucracy, Mm -hmm. learning the culture of an institution with a deep history, a lot of insider understandings and assumptions that were very strange to me. And I stumbled a lot. I stubbed my toe many times inadvertently. I offended people inadvertently. I did the classic new anthropologist bumbling around without realizing how bumbling I was mm-hmm. for quite a while. And, and I had to sort of reflect later that I expected that when I did my first big field work as a student. I didn't expect that as someone who now has, like, I, I'm a card-carrying anthropologist. Mm-hmm. I know how to do field work. And this is in my hometown. Everyone's speaking the same language, I assumed. All of that was irrelevant. I, I stumbled and bumbled perhaps even more at the start mm. of this project because I thought I wouldn't be stumbling and bumbling. Mm. Um, sanitation has a long history with people stepping in to write about them and then stepping out and getting the story wrong. So that was another reason that they were hesitant to embrace me. People have written lots of articles. They've followed their trash from their home to its end point. They've hung out with crews. They've done documentaries. They've done that. I'm, I'm impressed in a sort of, I'm, I guess I would say I'm bemused when a journalist knocks on sanitation's door and says, I want to follow my garbage from my kitchen to where it goes because that's just an amazingly original idea and I'm going to show everybody the whole process and the people on the other side of the desk, myself included at this point, just sort of yawn because it's been done and done and done and done and done. But the journalists who haven't yet done their homework don't know that, and so they're all gung-ho and like, take a number and get online. That's boring. <laughs> but yeah, so I wasn't proposing to do a hit-and-run project. I was proposing to do something much more deeply, much nosier in a way. I didn't want to just hang out with a crew. I wanted to get to know, and, and the more time I spent, the, the broader this project became, I wanted to get to know every aspect of the entire department, its hierarchy, every field site, every office, all the auxiliary support that is required for it to function. There's a, a repair shop in Queens that is, I don't know if this is true, but I've been told that it is as long as the Empire State Building is tall, and it's the biggest domestic-focused Repair, auto body repair shop in the world wow. and I took a tour of that with the guy who runs it which was an, an amazing event an amazing experience for lots of different reasons um, 
I could have done an ethnography just about that facility, mm-hmm. you know. Um, the book about the department that's out now, I hope it's just the first of many books about, and articles and podcasts and films and mm-hmm. about sanitation specifically, but also about a certain, um, I'm going to say, class of worker who is rock bottom essential to the smooth functioning of any city. Mm-hmm. And in New York, there's something like 300,000 civil service titles in this, or, or employees in the city. What would we do without them, mm-hmm. right? So there should be more. Maybe there can be an ethnography someday just about the central repair shop in Queens mm-hmm. for sanitation. It would be fascinating. Mm-hmm. The skill that people need to advance and how they get the job in the first place and the way in which connections can help and the way in which connections are irrelevant and how you can build a life around that or not and how you're... It, it's, to me, as fascinating as anything in the South Pacific or in the Northwest Territories of Canada mm-hmm. or any other cultural... Like, if we can put a boundary around it and say, this is a cultural group and I want to know their ways and, and their thinking, we don't have to go that far afield. Yeah. Right. I think one thing that sticks out about your work, maybe to the general public, um, which to, to a certain level maybe the other journalists or documentary filmmakers that you've been talking about have done a little bit of work on this, haven't... Uh, is new is that you spent so long working yourself. You weren't just interviewing or maybe even doing a day or two of let me go on these runs. It was a prolonged period of time. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that and uh, how long was it for and uh, and what was that experience like? The field work had many aspects. There was the I'll say the observation side of participant observation. When I first started to go to garages and accompany sanitation crews, and as if there were three people working the truck, I would—I was in uniform, uh, I was flinging trash, but I wasn't employed by the city. I wasn't in title, as they say, as a sanitation worker. I also did a lot of interviews then, and I did a lot of... That was when I was um, beginning to dig into the archival collections that I could find and the um, historic research, which I have to say was very satisfying. And originally my history chapters consumed 100 pages and went into far more detail than is in the Mm -hmm. book. And it took years to write that. It took years to write that. Um, And I was a little, it was a little hard to cut and cut and cut and cut to make it all fit in the book, but that's okay. It stands, it's fine. I think it stands firm. But um, what I realized after many months of the observation side. I mean, participating in this because I was flinging trash and hanging out at all shifts and whatnot, but I wasn't in the job. I wasn't responsible for anything. If I didn't show up one day, nobody cared. Mm -hmm. So then I took the job as a sanitation worker and I went through all the steps to get hired. I was working full-time as a sanitation worker and carrying my full-time Draper program NYU load. And that's why I didn't stay longer. I Mm -hmm. couldn't I couldn't carry the schedule and still take care of family obligations and you know so something had to give Um, I'm still sorry that it was the sanitation worker title that had to give Um, but that was when I went back to the department and I said look I cannot carry two full-time jobs plenty of people do it I couldn't do it let's figure out something I can have and I can give that is not quite so um, 
unfeasible, Mm -hmm. impractical. Mm -hmm. Let me be your anthropologist in residence. Mm -hmm. And the model for this was Meryl Eucalese, who's the artist in residence and has been for 40 years and is a good friend and a mentor and a guide in much of this. And in fact, it's because of Meryl that I did finally get the foot in the door. Um, So they knew the model of in residence, but anthropologist in residence, that was a little bit puzzling. So we, I, I offered a proposal of a series of projects that I would do with them on their behalf. Um, the book was not on the list, but the book, in my mind, was always one of those projects. Mm-hmm. And now that's done, which is great. But now I want to focus on the other three big ones, um, organizing their archives. Mm-hmm. Um, we have an oral history project that we're uh, growing voice at a time that I, I anchor that in a class about oral history mm-hmm. and the history of labor and waste management and whatnot. And then there's the museum. We will found a museum for sanitation. I've been talking about that for a while. I worked with Heidi Geismar, who was mm-hmm. still here in anthropology and museum studies, and we did a we taught a class. Uh, it was basically, how do you start a museum from scratch? Mm-hmm. And we used sanitation as the case study, and we did two exhibitions that were very well received, one of which even was reviewed by the New York Times. Wow. It was kind of amazing. Um, but so I, what I what I need to figure out is um, I just need help with the paperwork for the incorporation as a not-for-profit mm-hmm. institution, and then that will roll forward. So why don't we have anthropologists in residence all over the place? Mm-hmm. Why are we not embedded, if you will, in any bureaucracy, any organization, any... It's tricky because you don't want to merely be an advocate because that, you know cheerleading is not our primary job mm-hmm. on the other hand you don't want to they won't welcome you if they think you're going to be picking them apart and criticizing so I think the balance is always going to be um, delicate however what we offer as scholars is so vital and so juicy and so um, both immediately important and sort of in thinking on a wider horizon how do we understand ourselves as individuals inside of these cultural contexts? And just as importantly, how do we understand other individuals in their really weird cultural contexts, and yet they are our kin, mm-hmm. because they are. I mean, I, n- not right. we may not know that we're literally related to them back, but we are, somehow. Mm-hmm. So if we as anthropologists could become more, like help, a larger world understand what we offer and make that matter make that I mean people there's you hear phrases like psycho babble or that's pop psychology psychology as a discipline for better or worse has really permeated daily culture why haven't we been able to do that example Star Trek next generation mm-hmm. they have a psychic who's always on the bridge Deanna Troy and she's a psychologist and when the show started and I started watching it I was I was almost leaping up like no she should be an anthropologist mm-hmm. but so anyway that's a whole other podcast worth thinking about which is the kinship between anthropology and science fiction. Mm. Very, very interesting. Some of us have been hesitant to admit that we're science fiction geeks, but when there was a panel at the AAAs years ago, one of my graduate school professors 
it's interesting, he waited until right before he retired, and he put this panel together. And they gave us a tiny, tiny little room, and people were hanging from the rafters. It was packed to the gills. <laughs> it's like we were coming out to each other like, oh, you're a science fiction geek too? Oh! <laughs> it was really lovely. Anyway. Yeah. So how, I mean, related to kind of this issue of having anthropology more out there um, in the public, what role do you see of your book playing in that, trying to get this story? Because it, it's gotten a lot of press, it's or getting a lot of press as it's coming out, and um, it's a it's on a topic that's of interest for people, especially in the city or in any urban setting. Um, how did you position this project? I, I mean, did you who did you have this idea of who you wanted your audience to be, and if that audience was to be a more public audience or not? I mean, maybe I'll start with that question first. Who did you imagine your audience for this project? Everyone. Okay. <laughs> I wanted my audience for this book to be anyone who is curious about or concerned about urban life, environmental issues, mm -hmm. labor, a good story, um, I hope it's well enough written that even people who aren't inherently drawn to any of those subjects will enjoy it. It was not ever my concern that it be an academic book. In fact, quite the opposite. I think academic books have a vital role to play in the development of the discipline for us and for every other serious academic endeavor. Mm -hmm. And I think they push the conversation in provocative and important directions. They also tend to speak only to ourselves. And I want this work to speak to as broad an audience as possible. I hope that my colleagues take it seriously and do not um, dismiss it because it's aimed at a wider audience and because they want to be committing heinous crimes and that's your cultural teaching, well, I'm okay with that. I'm not saying that at all. But with nine some odd billion of us on the planet, here in New York we're cheek to jowl every day, which I think is one of our, it's one of the greatest irritations of living here and one of our greatest strengths. I think it's why we did not explode in the early 90s when the Rodney King riots set fire to cities all over the country. You can't you can't put a brick in someone's head when you're literally rubbing up against them back to back in the subway every day, right? Um, so I think in a place like New York, we already have sort of a good foundation for a greater level of tolerance. But anthropology lets us go beyond tolerance and helps us form understanding, helps us form um, respect sometimes, or if not respect, at least a diminishment of rejection. Mm -hmm. um, when I hear people who ha who are maybe not connected to the academy um, speak of other groups with raw hatred, I, I just think, you know, if you ever were lucky enough to have a really good introductory anthropology class mm -hmm. taught with energy, you could never speak that way again mm -hmm. about just a group after September 11th, listening to the anti-Muslim rhetoric around New York, around the country, was ugly, ugly. And it continues to be. It's just yet another bracket that you can put around a clump of people as an excuse for disenfranchising them, abusing them. Anthropology counters that in, in a hundred small and large ways. Um, and I almost feel like 
if you decide to be an anthropologist, you have a responsibility to use that perspective in a broader venue than just the academy. If we're only talking to each other, we should just all pack up and go home. <laughs> Which is not to say we should stop talking to each other. That's vital, but it's not enough. It can't be the end point. Anthronow podcast can be found online at www.anthronow.com. Thank you.